This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. When you're near me, I feel so romantic. Welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. We have a very special two-part episode for you, based on the cover story in the latest issue of the magazine, that's number 63, an interview with larger-than-life singer and rock and roll titan, PJ Proby. No one had seen anything quite like PJ Proby when he invaded the British pop scene in early 1964. The singer was in the UK at the behest of producer Jack Good to appear as the special guest star from America on the TV special Around the Beatles. What was supposed to be a two-week excursion turned into two wildly uproarious years during which Proby's popularity rivaled that of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Within 18 months, it had four top 10 hit singles and a top 20 album, caused teenagers to storm stages across the country, stolen Mick Jagger's girlfriend, persuaded Lennon and McCartney to write a song for him, incurred bans from theater chains and television shows, been sued by his own record company, and inspired numerous attention-grabbing headlines in the press. Proey's life prior to arriving in the UK is less well-documented. Born James Marcus Smith on November 5, 1938, in Houston, Texas, he arrived in Hollywood in the summer of 1957. There he recorded and performed as Jet Powers and ran with a crowd that included Sharon Sheely, Eddie Cochran, Jackie DeShannon, Ricky Nelson, and the Everly Brothers. He signed to Liberty Records in 1961 as an artist, taking the name PJ Proby, and to Metric Music, their publishing arm as a songwriter. He had some success with his songwriting, but as an artist, his career appeared to be going nowhere. Prior to landing in England, he'd been supplementing his income working as a motorcycle delivery boy. Another of his side hustles in the early 60s was as a demo singer, earning $25 a shot to record songs that were pitched to Elvis Presley. Proby's uncanny gift for capturing Presley's unique vocal style assured a reasonably high success rate, and several of these songs ended up being sung by Elvis in his movies. The original pretext for this interview that follows had been to discuss these demos, but we were having so much fun that we ended up talking for almost two hours, followed by a couple more lengthy conversations. Proby is an amazing storyteller, one of the best I've ever encountered. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. Well, I guess, um, yeah, what we're mainly going to talk about is this new album that's coming out on Bear Family, the Presley-style album. So I, uh-huh. I thought maybe we could start by sort of, um, you know, setting the scene. Tell me about, you know, how you came to move out to Hollywood in the late 50s. How did that come about? What was that experience like for you? Well, I had been uh, on the radio with Tommy Sands and Elvis Presley since I was 13, working for Biff Cully's Cracker Barrel Corner. And uh, Biff took us out, me and Tommy Sands, to meet Elvis when he first started. Uh, that's all right, little mama. And I took the family out that night, went to the hitching post to sing, and he introduced us to Elvis. And uh, Elvis went on stage, took one look at my sister, and sung to her all night, <laughs> and fell in love. And the next day, his pink Cadillac was in the driveway, and he was there for lunch. And uh, Mama put her best uh, Irish linen and tablecloth out, and uh, Elvis sat down and had chicken dinner. And uh, when he was finished, he said, Mrs. Moores, that's my mother's other name when she married Arthur Moores, the family doctor. Yeah. Uh, that's the best chicken I've had since my mama made it. I said, do you mind if uh, Betty and I get up now and leave the table and go in the living room and listen to some records? 
mother said, no, Elvis, not at all. He said, thank you, ma'am. And he stood up from the table and wiped his mouth on the tablecloth. <laughs> My mother almost fainted. She almost died. <laughs> and I said, mama, mama, you, you don't understand. I said, boys from the deep south do things like that. They wipe their mouth on tablecloths, and they, they even wipe their, their mouth on the sleeve of their shirt. Mothers just couldn't understand any of that. That's how we all got together. And uh, so then I went off to military academy, and I uh, stayed in touch with Tommy Sands, and uh, went out to Hollywood when I graduated from Western Military Academy. I went straight to Hollywood and uh, looked Tommy up, and Tommy was busy doing uh, motion pictures with Annette Funicello, uh, some beach movies and stuff, and... Uh, he told me to go to Lillian Goodman, a vocal coach for MGM, motion picture stars, and uh, see if see if she could, uh, she would introduce me to a lot of people and everything if she accepted me to give me vocal lessons, vocal coaching. Yeah. So uh, I went there with my father, and uh, I sung for her, and she accepted me, and she turned to my father and said, but he needs work. And Daddy said, how much? She said... Well, it said it's going to cost you. And he, he said, well, I'll pay for about a year. So Daddy paid for a year, and that's how I met Lillian Goodman. That's uh, The rest the rest was just uh, different people I met in Hollywood. I didn't see Elvis again until he went in the Army about that time. Yeah. And I met the girl that he was dating then, Dottie Harmony, who took him to the draft board. And yeah. uh, I, I became engaged to her. And uh, when Elvis got out of the Army, I was on a football team that Ricky Nelson had put together, uh, and we were playing against Elvis's team. <laughs> really? And Elvis, Elvis didn't know it. He hadn't seen me since I was about 13, when he, when he was going with Betty. And uh, he didn't know it, but I had a scholarship in American football to the University of Missouri. And he couldn't understand. I, I couldn't afford any shoes or anything. I didn't have any money in Hollywood. And so I was running around playing for Ricky Nelson's team barefooted. And I'd every time Elvis would pa pass the ball to Red West, I'd snatch it out of the air and run for a touchdown for Ricky Nelson's team. And Elvis <laughs> couldn't understand it. He, he kept yelling, who's a barefoot boy? Who's a barefoot boy? Who's that barefoot boy? Who, who is that? And and he couldn't, couldn't remember where he had seen me before or uh, Betty or anything like that. And so after the after the game, I was sitting under a tree, and a piece of gum, stick of gum, came across my shoulder, and I heard this voice say, "Want a stick of gum, kid?" <laughs> and uh, he said, "Good game, good game. That was a good game." I said, "Why don't you come up to my house after uh, after we leave here?" And so I'm having a party afterwards. I said, "Man, I got to go home and clean up. I can't come up there dirty like this." And uh, he said. Uh, and I said, and I've got no way to get up to your house. And he said, I'll have one of the boys pick you up. So one of the boys picked me up and took me up to the house. And uh, Elvis never never really spoke a lot to me or anything like that. He uh, sat on the other side of the room and just looked at me all the time. He's try probably trying to figure out who I was and where he'd met me before. But I had... Uh, I'd, I'd bought him a, a birthday present for his birthday, which was uh, just a, a little pinball thing that you you roll a a, a a silver ball up on two sticks and you try and drop it in the holes and it's pretty hard to learn and so when i was leaving i saw elvis over on the floor uh trying to master that that pinball thing <laughs> and uh that's about the last last i ever saw of elvis wow. and i started uh a year or so later i started uh doing his motion picture music for him, doing the songs for his motion pictures before he did them. Right. And they'd take them to him for him to learn. And I, was, I was working for Ben Wiseman, one of his songwriters. Right, yeah. And uh, Ruth Batchelor, another songwriter. Yeah. And so that's that's where uh, all these records came from. I, I'd never heard them before, except I, after doing them, I was paid $25, and I, and I picked up my money and left. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but uh, I never never heard the records afterwards, and uh, I got a couple of them, but just just a couple. That was it. And then all of a sudden, this last year or something, uh, 
the Bear family put this thing together. They got all the records that I did for Elvis for motion pictures and put them together, even the ones he didn't do uh, himself. But I did the demos for him to learn, and so they put all that together and put out a, a, put out this record. Right. And uh, it's just me seeing seeing all the songs he did and all the songs he didn't do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it, it, it's fascinating to hear these. Um, you know, I, I've been listening to them constantly all, since I got them, and um, it's real interesting how, how much you sound like Elvis in these. You're really pitching. Well, we're both country boys. We're both from down south in America, and so a, lo- a lot of country boys sound like Elvis. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so, yeah. So tell me about how the the process worked for these demos, right? Um how, you know, were you given sheet music or a lyric sheet, or, or did you sit down with the songwriter? You know, walk me through how you did. I just called on the phone by Ben Wiseman and asked if I'd do the demos, and I said yes, and I'd, I'd go over to his garage apartment, and uh, he'd give me the lyrics, and we'd run through it on the piano with him once, twice, then get in front of the microphone and lay, lay the uh, the demonstration record down, and then he'd get all the other musicians after I'd left and add them onto it. So you just recorded his, he had a studio garage kind of thing? Yeah, the garage apartment studio. So you wouldn't be there when the other musicians were added in? No, I wasn't there. I was. I did all, I did the the demonstration records, the backing thing on my own, and then he brought the other musicians in. Right. I'd, I'd already left. I just went in there, put my vocal down, and that was it. And you would just get like twenty five dollars, and that was it. Would you get? Would you get a bonus if the song was used? No, uh, uh-uh. no, I got paid twenty five dollars. That's enough hamburger and beer, and that was it. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, what you know, for me, I thought what it's amazing is how much feeling you put into some of these performances. You know, even with, you know, some of the songs were pretty, you know, insubstantial. Some of them were great. Some of them are just kind of goofy. You know. But you kill it vocally yeah. every time, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, tell me about that. I always try and do my best on anything I do. No matter, uh, doesn't matter how much I get paid for it. Uh, I treat it like it's extremely important. Yeah, and of course it was important to me for that hamburger and beer. <laughs> yeah. So I did my best. Right. <laughs> Can we talk about some of the individual songs? I mean, do you, do you have specific memories of them? I mean, no, like, I can't remember hardly any of them except <laughs> the one that's in the charts now. The charts here in, in England, Mike Reed's charts, it's in the top 30. Which one is that uh, one? Uh, Funny Nakapulco. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that one was that was one of the ones that was used. Yeah, yeah, Elvis did that one. Yeah. Acapulco sleeping in the bay. So, I mean, did, did you remember ever like seeing the movie and you know at the time and going, wow, that's the song I did the demo for? No, I didn't. I didn't, I didn't have enough money to go to the movies in those days. Twenty-five dollars didn't pay for a hamburger and beer. The movie was out. <laughs> but I was going home to his girlfriend, who was my fiance, Dottie Harmony. All right, yeah, yeah. So that was that was a bonus. Yeah, that sure was. <laughs> okay, yeah. Though no, I was going to run, run some of those. I mean, Cotton Candy Land, you know, and, and some of those other songs. By yeah, I think Ruth Bachelor wrote that. Sandman's coming. Yes, he's coming. To sprinkle you with sand. Yeah, I mean, that's a, you know, a song he's singing to children in the movie, but, you know, you really sell that, that lyric, you know, it's a, a cream kind of lullaby lyric. Well, that's what they, that's what they paid me for. They paid me to sound as much like Elvis Presley as I could, you know, uh, and that's why they used me so much. That's why I got used all the time, is I was the nearest thing in Hollywood sound like Elvis Presley. Yeah, I mean, you played that down, uh, you know, when I asked you earlier, you said, oh, you know, you're from the South, but you were throwing in some very, you know, some of his kind of trademark kind of vocal tics. That he well, did. I had I had Elvis down pat. <laughs> oh, you did? Uh, long before I got to Hollywood, I was doing it in military schools and everything, going on stage and imitating him and everything. Oh, yeah, okay. So, yeah, you, you had his mannerisms and... Um, yeah, 
I could certainly hear like on some of the songs, like towards the end when you get to kind of ad lib, you know, you really, you really start nailing it with some very cool stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah. I could tell you. Well, that's fun. when I got to feel a little bit more relaxed. I'd sometimes throw myself in there. <laughs> and Elvis, Elvis would, Elvis was sitting next to me one time, uh, listening to a band and he looked over at me and said, said, PJ, they're trying too hard, man. They're trying too hard because <laughs> they were trying to impress him. And I think if Elvis Elvis was and I sat down listening to my demos that I sent to him, he'd probably turn turn around to me and say, "PJ, you're trying too hard, man. You're trying too hard." <laughs> um, let's uh, there's, now. There's a song on there that you wrote with uh, with Dottie and a couple of other people. Dottie Harmony, yeah. Caught in my dreams. I'll see you tonight at the place where we meet in my dreams. I'll hold you tonight like I do every night in my dream. I wrote that for Elvis, and I called Sonny West up, one of his boys, Red West's cousin, and, uh, and I asked him to come over to the house. He came over to my house, and I played it for him, played him the demo I'd made, and he said, boy, Elvis really liked that. And I said, well, could you take it up to him tonight? So he did, and he took it up to him, and he brought came back the next day, and he said, DJ, I took it up to Elvis, and he was in the shower, and I played it for him, played it, put it on while he was in the shower, and he yelled out of the shower, what, what's that, man? I want to do that. I want to record that. And when he got out of the shower, he, uh, I played it for him again. He said, yeah, I want to record that. And he, he left to put his clothes on, and, and uh, that guy that he brought back from Germany, uh, can't remember his name right now. but he, he, Yeah, I know who you mean, yeah. He, he, the guy, he, he kind of did everything the guy said, and and, and uh, Sonny said that the guy turned to him and said, uh, "I know who that is singing. That's PJ." Said if he can tell PJ, I want sixty-five percent, or I'll tell Elvis uh, he can't do it. And he said, "I picked him up, PJ, and I slammed him against the wall." And I said, "You little dago, son of a bitch! I've always didn't, been couldn't understand why Elvis brought you back out of the army." I said one day I'm gonna whoop your little set, your, your little dago ass. <laughs> and I dropped him back on the floor. He said, here's your here's your record back, PJ. He said, it's good enough. Somebody's going to do it one of these days. So the next day we took it to Ricky Nelson and he did it. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> so that was a pretty good <laughs> consolation prize. I mean, it's not Elvis, but, you know, Ricky's great. Yeah. Ricky never could quite cut it because uh, he... he the demo sounded a bit too much like Elvis, and, and and Ricky couldn't sing like Elvis. Yeah, he he did it, and he did a fair job, but he didn't he didn't do the the the, the emotional job like uh, I did on the demo for Elvis to do, or Elvis himself would have cut it. Yeah, maybe you could have cut a, a new demo with it with a. You probably could have done a Rick Nelson oh, if, style. Yeah, vocal, if I'd right? known Ricky was going to do it, Sharon took it. Sharon Sheely took it over to him. If I'd known he was going to do it, I'd have cut one sounding like him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. So, yeah, you had a reputation for being able to sing like anybody. You know, how, how did yeah, that come I, about? Were you, were you like a, impersonating people as a kid? Was that kind of a natural gift for you? I just listened to the radio and sung to anybody that was on there. I'd, I'd be Slim Whitman one day and Frank Sinatra the next and Tony Bennett the next and Bo Diddley the next and... Whoever came on the radio, yeah, I tried to sound like them. Right, yeah, you got That's it. Like when I when I was signed to Liberty Records as an artist, one of my albums came out, uh, and it was called Enigma. Yeah, and I went to the to the owner and I said, "What does Enigma mean? I've never heard that word." He said, "You don't know what Enigma means, PJ." He said, "Go up to the art department; they'll tell you." <laughs> and so I went up to the art department. And I said, "What?" Why are you calling this record an enigma? What does that mean? Said PJ, enigma means something you can't quite put your hand on. You can't quite get a hold of it. You can't quite understand what it is and what it isn't. He said every time you come in the recording studio, we never know who's going to walk in the door. You, Frank Sinatra, Elvis Presley, Bo Diddley, uh, uh, Johnny Cash. <laughs> You always, you're always somebody else when you come in the studio. You're, you're, who, you're whoever you're going to sing a demo for. Yeah. And I said, oh, I see. 
said, well, enigma means somebody you can't quite put your finger on. So you're like, yeah, I'll, I'll take it. Yeah, I just said, oh, well, all righty. Thank you very much. <laughs> now I know. in Hollywood, where did you live? I mean, tell, you know, kind of paint a picture for me of uh, what your life was like. Oh, I lived day. all over the place. I didn't have any money to begin with, so I lived up in a place, I lived in a, in a cave called the Bronson Caves. Yeah. Above Hollywood, where they did a lot of motion picture work. I lived in those caves, and I lived in apart, some apartment houses. And then in 1968, I moved in, I met Sharon Sheely, who wrote Poor Little Fool for Ricky Nelson when she was 14. Right, you're talking 1958. And she was going with a guy called Eddie Cochran. Of course, yeah. And I and I got to know Eddie really well and Sharon really well and just started hanging around with them. And, uh, well, at the time I was living in a garage when I met Sharon and, and Eddie. And uh, while I was at Sharon's, what, what had happened is this friend of mine had come over and said, I was lying in bed listening to the radio because I couldn't afford a television or anything. And uh, he said, put some clothes on, man. I'm going to take you to meet a friend of mine, Sharon Sheely, and she's she's got a person living there that you've been in love with all your life, Dottie Harmony. I said, bullshit. And he said, no, no, she, she's there. Come on, put some clothes on. So I threw some clothes on. We went over, and he knocked on the door, and this girl came, Sharon Sheely, to the door. And he introduced me to her, and she introduced me to her sister, Mary Jo, and her mother, Mary Jane. And so we went in, we were sitting around in there and everything. A little time passed, and I turned to Blumberg, the guy that took me there, and said, Blumberg, Dottie Harmony isn't here, you lying son of a bitch. And Sharon heard me and said, oh, yeah? Then what's that at the top of the stairs? And I looked up there, and here was this beautiful blonde in a, in a little red jumpsuit. And she comes walking down the stairs, and Sharon said, uh, my name was Jet then at the time, said Jet Powers. Jet, this is Dottie Harmony. And, of course, I, her, her being Elvis's girlfriend, I automatically turned into Elvis. And, oh, please, please meet you, ma'am. Very <laughs> pleased to meet you. Uh, glad to be here. Uh, oh, no, I mean, hi, how are you? <laughs> I'm Jet Powers. How are you? And so we got to know each other all day and everything. And then Sharon said, we're having a party tomorrow. Uh, Cochran's coming over, and, and the Everly Brothers are coming over, and Ricky Nelson's coming over. Why don't you come over and join us? And I said, I'd love to. So when we got out the door, I turned to Blumberg, because I didn't have any money to get there. And I said, Jim, are you going to bring me over tomorrow? I said, Tell me now if you are, because if you're not, I'm going to sleep here in the flower bed to make sure I'm I'm here tomorrow. <laughs> and uh, so he's, I'll bring you. So he went and brought me a six-pack. And next day I went over, and I met the Everleys and, and Baker Knight and oh yeah and uh, Cochran and all, all of them. And, and I just got to know them very, very well. And, and shortly after that, I started dating Dottie, and I moved in with her, moved into a trailer out in the valley. And we became engaged, and so that was uh, that was how I got involved with uh, most of the top people that I know, knew in show business. Uh, and I was 19 at the time. Right, almost like in one 24-hour period, you were kind of metal yeah. heavy hitters. Yeah, Every, everything was happening to me so fast it was unbelievable. Because uh, when I was up at Lillian Goodman's, study having vocal coaching. She introduced me to a guy named Ray Gilbert, who became my manager, and he was he had a, he won an Oscar for writing a lot of the songs for Song of the South, a motion picture. He wrote Zippity Doo Dah, oh yeah, and a, and a bunch of other other things. Uh, so he became my manager, and he took me over to some agents called Gaby Lutz, Heller and Loeb on Hollywood and Vine. They they signed me up. They wanted to sign me up as 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 my agents. But I was too young to sign a contract, 
So they called my father in Texas up, and he flew out in the private plane, flew in there, and and, and uh, we were talking. And they said, uh, Jimmy, I was still Jimmy Smith then. How uh, how much do you want to sign with us? And I said, How much do I want? Man, I don't want it. My father said, Jimmy, go out and sit in the foyer with Ray. I'll take care of this. My father was a banker. And uh, so he came out in a little bit, and he said, Jimmy, I've got you $10,000 advance. And I said, my God, Daddy, I've never seen $10,000. He said, well, don't you think you owe Ray something? And I said, sure, I do, Daddy. How much do you think? He said, how much do you think? He put the ball back in my court. And I said, well, what about half? He said, is half okay with you, Ray? Ray said, fine. He said, well, here's what I want you to do. You take Jimmy's part, half and your half, and put them in, a, in your bank account. And every time Jimmy wants any money, he has to have your signature to draw it out. And so that's that's the way I started meeting people. So, and then right after that would be when you started making those records as Jet Powers. Yeah. Those two forty-fives right. are fabulous records. You know, Girl, Go, Go, Girls Go, and Loud Age Quarrel, I think it was. That was the first one, yeah. Tell me yeah. about that. You, you're backed by someone called Vince Paul and the Raunch Hands. Who were they? I don't remember them at all. Uh, very vaguely. I just remember Ray and I were put on a plane, uh, an airplane to go to Boston, Massachusetts to record. Uh, and on the plane was, was Dorothy Lamore and Charlie Applewhite. Two huge, huge stars. Dorothy Lamore from the Bob Hope films, and Charlie Applewhite was a big singer then. Yeah. And I thought, my God, I'm on here with, with these stars, and I've I've made it. So we got to Boston, and we went to Boylston Street to the studios where where uh, Dion the Belmonts and all of them were recorded, and we we recorded those two songs, and. Um, I don't remember meeting the, the backing guys that backed me very very well. Yeah, I, I just uh, I never was one to meet the uh, all the boys in the band or anything. Right, they were just there in the studio, and you just did it. Yeah, I, I was too too full of myself to meet them. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought I thought I had already made it. Hell, I knew Dorothy Lamore and Charlie Applewhite. Why in the hell should I want to meet a bunch of ba- guys in the band? <laughs> Yeah, you're Jet Powers at that point. Yeah, yeah I'd already made it. I was Jet Powers. <laughs> I was strutting around there like a peacock. <laughs> and then there was another one called uh, My Troubles and, and Loud Perfume. Yeah, that's when I met uh, Bumps Blackwell, who managed Little Richard. Right. And uh, Sam Cook. Uh, I, I, two girls took me over to his house, and I sang for him, and I sang in my colored voice, and he, and he he just went crazy, and he wanted to sign me up. So uh, I I went over to Ray Gilbert, and I said, Ray, you know you're my manager and everything. He said, but you've done everything you can for me, but you you don't seem able to be getting very getting anywhere. And I said, I've just met a guy who who uh, manages people like Little Richard and uh, Sam Cooke and everything, and he wants to sign me up, and I'd like to sign with him. So he, he and my father had come in to uh, to Ray's house that day, and he said, Jimmy, you can't, you can't leave Ray. He's done too much for you. And I said, yes, but I'm not getting anywhere, Daddy. He said, I, I, I'd like to sign, sign with these. Gaby Lutz, Heller, and Loeb, them, they don't know anything about teenage music or anything. They, they've got all kind of big stars and everything on their books, but, but uh, they, don't, they don't know anything about the music of today. And, and I'm not getting anywhere. And uh, they said, we, he said, well, Jimmy, you can't leave Ray. And I said, Daddy, I'm walking out that door now. So long, fellas. And so I left and went and uh, recorded with Bumps Blackwell. And uh, he got me the song My Troubles and Loud Perfume and uh, went in the studios with me and Dottie and Sharon Sheely and we recorded it. Uh, Liberty Records found out about it and uh, 
I can't remember whether they dropped me from the label or not. I thought, yeah, I thought this was before you'd signed to Liberty. I thought you signed to Liberty maybe, I think I read 1961, and this record's like 1959, but... Oh, okay, yeah, then I wasn't signed to Liberty then. Yeah. Yeah, because then Dottie and I broke up, and uh, I was kind of living pretty wild in the country and uh, around Hollywood, partying it up and everything. She found out about it, came over and picked me up, and took me out to Eddie Cochran's brother's, Bobby, to work with him building a recording studio. And so uh, I stayed out there for a while and helped build the studio and then went back to Hollywood and uh, didn't have any money. So I was I was going to go back to Houston and join the Army, what I'd been trained for. From eight years old, I'd been in military academies. So I was going to go in the Army, and as, as I was down on Hollywood and Vine, I looked up and there was a sign that said, Songwriters Wanted, $300 a song. So I went in there, just me and my guitar, and sat with the rest of the boys, and they called me in. I sang three three songs I had written, and uh, I didn't think they were, they were interested, so I just packed my guitar away and was about to walk out, and he said, Don't you want your money? And I said, Oh, oh yes, 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 of course. <laughs> like I knew what I was talking about. And uh, so he gave me a, a check for $300, $100 a song, and uh, I said, Thank you very much. Uh, uh, I'll bring you some more in. I didn't have any more, but I was trying to act like I was a big songwriter. And I got to the front door of his office and ran like hell down the street, ran back up Wilcox Boulevard to my apartment house, went into uh, the lady that owns the apartment house, and I said, I've got a check for $300. I've just sold my songs. Can you cash them at the bank? So she said yes, so she went down and cashed them for me. And I went straight out and I bought a year's worth of tin tinned food, <laughs> years worth of tinned food, a year's worth of the cheapest wine, Mogan David or something that, uh, uh, that you could buy, and uh, beers to last me for a year. <laughs> and uh, then I then I sat down, and I th- had a little money left over, so I went down. And I bought a suit and a new pair of shoes to go to interviews with. Then I came back and I sat down and I thought, this is it. I've got everything I need. I've got all the food I need for a year, all the drink I need. got the clothes to go to interviews. Now I'm just going to lie down on this driveway out in front of my my front door. Uh, I was in a, a garage apartment. Lie down on this driveway and pretend I'm at the beach and turn on the radio and have a beer and try and get a sundan. And so I was doing that, and all of a sudden, beep, 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 there's a horn at the end of the driveway. And I looked up, and there was Sharon Sheely and Jackie DeShannon. And Sharon said, PJ, get some clothes on. I'm going to take you to Liberty Records and get you a recording contract so you'll have a steady income. Uh, A writer's contract so you'll have a steady income. So... Uh, I said, Sharon, I've just sold the three songs to somebody else, and I, I, I've spent all the money. And she said, who was it? And I told the name. She said, I know him. I'll go down and get get the songs back. You get dressed. So I got dressed, and she came back, and uh, she put me in the car, and we drove to Liberty Records. She introduced me to Dick Glasser, who was the A&R man, and uh, I sang the same songs again for him. And he signed me to to Metric Music, the publishing company of, of House of of Liberty Records. And then he then he said, "I like your singing too. Would you like to sign it as an artist uh, to Liberty Records?" I said, "Yeah." So I signed as a writer to Metric Music and a singer to Liberty Records. I walked in as Jet Powers. Oh yeah, they they said, "I tell you what," said. Jet Powers, we we have to change your name because uh, you're very famous all over Hollywood with the wrong people. Said you're very famous with the with the police force. 
you're in you're in jail every single Saturday night for drunken disorderly. And I said, Well, that's right and Sharon piped in and said, Call him P J Proby and that was an old boyfriend before she met Eddie Cochran. And so Dick Glasser said, is that okay with you, P- uh, Jet? Change it to PJ? I said, you can change it anything you want to. He <laughs> said, well, how would you like it spelled? P-R-O-B-Y or P-R-O-B-I? Sharon chimed in. P-R-O-B-Y, silly. P-R-O-B-I is for girls. <laughs> and so I walked in as... Jet Powers came out as PJ Proby. I had Jet Powers with not one cent in my pocket, and I came back out with three hundred dollars cash again, uh, on top of the three hundred I'd already spent, and a contract of getting three hundred a month as an in-house writer for Metric Music. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> about uh, one of my favorite songs that you wrote, Clown Shoes. I mean, when did that come in? Oh, Clown Shoes. I love that song. Yeah, I wrote that. I wrote Clown Shoes, and uh, I went in and did it. Uh, me and Glenn Campbell and Leon Russell and David Gates, we all played the demo. I can't remember who I wanted to do it. I, uh, one day, Dick Glasser called me in. He said, I uh, got Johnny Burnett to do Clown Shoes. I said, great, because Johnny was already a friend of mine said great you know so Johnny Johnny recorded clown shoes but uh, he, he didn't do it like I did it and he didn't do it all that country and I, I wrote it very very country so it, it did it it made uh, a big impression over here in England but it didn't do a thing in the States yeah interesting yeah that's a I mean it's such an uh, interesting concept for a song I mean how did you come up with the idea of like somebody sending someone a box with a pair of clown shoes in it. I mean, it's just very... Yeah, well, that's about how I felt felt when Dottie threw me out of the house when we broke up. I felt like a real clown, and uh, I wrote all kind of things for Dottie when we broke up. I wrote the one hit that I get paid the most for, uh, Ain't Gonna Kiss You. I wrote that for Dottie. Oh. Uh, and the searchers did that. Yeah. It's still the uh, the one I get paid the most money for every year. Really? BMI. Wow. I wrote one called Handsome Guy that Dick Glasser himself did under the name of Dick Laurie. Oh, and really? It, it, and it was really big in Australia. I don't know that one. I'm going to look that one up. Can you hear a big difference between Parliament and Funkadelic? Are you able to name the members of Wings who were not Paul and Linda? And are you intimately familiar with every track on side six of The Clash at Sandinista? Then Discograffiti's the podcast for you. Discograffiti is a music obsessive's dream come true. Ugly Things friend Dave Gebro and the guests explore an artist or band's entire recorded output in a futile but valiant attempt to reach a higher truth, often cleverly disguised as a nerdy compendium of star ratings and lists. Some of the many guests have included Vashti Bunyan rating her own catalog, Jim Florentine doing four episodes on Black Sabbath, Lou Barlow on The Zombies, members of Pavement doing a five-parter on their own work, Anthony Fantano on The Velvet Underground, Bob Mayer on The Replacements, Andrew Sandoval on The Monkees, and Don Randy rating the great David Axelrod. Dave Gebro's also been releasing three shows a week for over a year in one of the most active Patreons humanly possible. You're not going to want to miss it. Discography is available wherever podcasts are consumed. We recommend that you subscribe and listen. 
your career with Liberty, you didn't really get anywhere. You had a couple 45. Not as a singer. Yeah, you were getting songs, but as an artist, you weren't getting anywhere. They they did. They got me some some pretty good records and everything. But the thing is, they never they never promoted anything that I put out. Yeah, yeah. there was no promotion whatsoever. There was a couple good ones. Yeah, a couple that, that Jackie and Sharon wrote, like the other side of town and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. And they they just never ever pushed them, never promoted them, never never got me out promoted them, never never set anything up for me. Next thing I want to ask you about was uh, this record you made under the name Orville Woods, Darling. It's a really great record, man. It's like a, yeah. you know, like a, it's kind of a Bo Diddley kind of feel or something, a bit like when Bo and Jerome Green used to do those things, like Say Man, you know? Yeah. <laughs> With the laughing well, and everything. When, yeah, when, when we made the record, it sounded out, I sounded like so much like a colored man that uh, Al Bennett wanted to change my name to try and get me on the black stations because whites weren't allowed on black stations in those days. And blacks were just beginning to get on the commercial statements on stations on the white stations. Right. So uh, I came up with the name Orville Woods, which was a more colored-sounding name. <laughs> yeah. And I'll, I'll be damned if, if they didn't start playing it on the black stations. So I went to Al Bennett one day and I said, Al, We've broken the, broken the uh, what do you call it? Like the color barrier, the race barrier. Yeah, we've broken the color barrier in the, in the band on uh, whites on black stations and everything. For God's sakes, don't put my picture out in Billboard. Very next day, my picture was in Billboard, and they took me off the colored stations, but it was too late. I'd already broken the, the band between colors and whites, and from then on, whites were played on b black stations. Wow. Which side of the record were they playing? Was it Wicked Woman or Darling? Uh, I think they were playing uh, w Wicked Woman. Yeah. Who was your band on that session? It's a, it's See, I wrote that for Ray Charles. Oh, yeah. And and, and Metric Music didn't wouldn't get it to him. They would never push, push any of the records that I wrote to other artists. Yeah. They, they put them out by me. <laughs> Even the ones I wrote for girls, they put out by me. <laughs> Which ones did you write for girls? You, you remember? Oh, I wrote, wrote a bunch of them. I can't remember the names. I wrote for the Shirelles and, and, a, and a bunch of girls groups. And they ended up using yours. <laughs> you know, and the, yeah, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't plug them to the girls, so uh, they put them out with me singing the demo. I sound like a queer. <laughs> so, do you remember what your band was on that Oval Woods session? Yeah, it was always the same. It was me, Glenn Campbell... Uh, Leon Russell, David Gates, uh, Hal Blaine on drums, yeah, and 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 all of us boys singing like girls in the background. Uh, Al Bennett wouldn't pay for girl singers, <laughs> so we'd had to do falsetto. Right. <laughs> well, that is just a great record. It's really good. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about another early one of your songs in a moment. Uh, Gordon Terry did it. Um, yeah, I was lucky they did get that one to a country singer, Gordon Gary, yeah. In a moment, I'll stop laughing and go home. Is that who you had in, in, in mind for, or were moment, you thinking of someone bigger? No, um, I had uh, more in, uh, in mind of Jim Reeves. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, I can see that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a nice song. Yeah, it wasn't bad. I wrote, I wrote a bunch of them for Metric Music. So you were kind of stalled there, you know, not getting any promotion at Liberty, and then Jack Good came into the picture, right? That's what changed yeah. the course of things. Well, we, we sent uh, Sharon off to, to uh, join Eddie in, in England when uh, he left to do a, a tour over here. And uh, the phone rang one night. We were all in Sharon's living room and picked up the phone and and uh, this guy said, "Sure, baby, get your ass over here." It was it was Cochran. <laughs> get your ass over here. So we we packed her up and took her to the airport the next day and sent her off. And uh, then when the tour was over, they had that terrible car accident and Eddie was killed and Sharon 
neck was broken. And so when she came back, we kept an eye on her because she kept taking the neck brace off. She was so vain. And uh, So Sharon was the connection? Oh, yes. Did. Yeah. When she got back, she was doing me all... She did all these films of the people that were on stage with Eddie, uh, Billy Fury and Marty Wilde. And then she kept playing me all, all this stuff, these motion pictures, call them videos today. And I just wasn't interested. said, uh... This guy Jack Good, who who runs all the the uh, show business in England, old boy and six five special and boy meets girl and all this. He's gonna come over here to Hollywood and start doing pictures here, TV shows here. And I just wasn't interested because she was, sounded to me like she's trying to get me interested in in England, which I wasn't interested in all. It's like going into show business through the back door. Yeah. And uh, so I said, yeah, 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 yeah. She said, I'll introduce you when I when he comes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so I went out and I got married. And a year later, uh, my wife and I were sitting on the floor eating tacos by candlelight because I'd had a big argument with Liberty Records because I had I had written this ain't gonna kiss you and they turned it down. So I took it to some other people. And they they recorded, and it was a big hit. So Liberty Records wanted me to stand up for them in court when they sued them. And I said, I'm not going to stand up for you guys because you had first shot at it and turned it down. And they said, do you have that in writing? I said, no, I thought we were all friends. <laughs> See, I know nothing about the business in those days. And um, they said, uh, well, we're going we're gonna to cut your money off. Uh, that we give you, I was getting about $500, $500 a month from his in-house writer by then. And we're going to cut your money off. And so they cut my money off, and so I couldn't pay for the electricity in the house. They cut the electricity off. I couldn't pay for the car. They re repossessed my car. And that's when my wife and I were sitting on the floor uh, eating tacos by candlelight. There was a knock at the door, and I grabbed my pistol and held it behind the couch. And I said, honey, we want to see who's at the door. So she went and opened the door, and there was Sharon Sheely and Jackie DeShannon. I said, hello, ladies, what brings you up here? I was living at the top of Mulholland Drive. And uh, she said, I brought somebody to meet you. I said, who's that? She said, uh, and with that, this figure came through the door and walked over to me. And I hadn't had a haircut in a month because I didn't have any money. It wasn't the fact that it was in style or anything. There was no such thing as long hair then. <laughs> yeah. And this guy just came over and grabbed my hair and jerked it. And he said, my God, it's real. You're high, dear boy. Be at <laughs> CBS tomorrow at 10 o'clock. With that, he turned around and vanished out the door into the dark. <laughs> and I said, what the hell was that, Sharon? She said, that was Jack Good, the man I told you I was going to introduce you to. The biggest... Uh, producer in England and I said well Jesus Christ what what am I supposed to do now I said I haven't got a car or anything he said turn up at uh, CBS I said I haven't got a car they just repossessed it he said I know what you want you want me to pick you up Marianne take that booze out of his hand and put him to bed if you're not at the top of the steps when I come tomorrow I'll leave without you so Marianne took the booze out of my hand, put me to bed, and I was at the top of the stairs the next day. She picked me up, took me to CBS, and we did the first uh, recording of uh, this new show that Jack had written called Young America Swings the World. And I got to know Jack very well. And while we were waiting for CBS to pick up the uh, contract on it, I'd go over to Jack's every day, and we would rehearse what was his pet uh, thing, Othello. He'd always wanted to put Othello on stage to music, Othello the musical. Yeah. And so while we were doing that, uh, I told him, I said, Jack, I can't play this part of Iago, I mean, of Cassio. I said, I'm from Texas. I don't know this Shakespeare shit. And he said, oh, yes, you can do it, my boy. You can do it. I said, I can't learn all this. So what he did, he said, um, he put these earphones on me and had the tape of, of uh, my 
my character, Cassio, going over his lines, and he had me take a nap. And I went to sleep. And when I woke up, he walked in as Iago, shouting Iago's lines, and I started shouting my lines back to him. I had learned them. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it. So I was, I was fitting in with the Othello thing, when all of a sudden he came one day and he said, I have to go to England. He said, uh, I just got a call from the manager of the Beatles. That's them up there on the wall in that picture, having a pillow fight. <laughs> said, uh, Brian Epstein, their manager, wants me to come over and do their, their first transatlantic film. And uh, so what I'll do is I'll go over, dear boy, and I'll, and I'll play your records for the boys and for Brian and see if I can't get you on the show. And I said, well, thank you very much, Jack. I'll see you when you get back. So, and I thought nothing of it. I didn't. The Beatles had just come out in America, and they were just beginning to get big. So Jack left, and uh, I had a fight with my wife and moved into a, a hotel and was lying there in my hotel bed one night when the phone rang. He said, hello, this is Lillian, Lillian somebody from Rediffusion. Is Mr. P.J. Proby there? I said, speaking. So, oh, Mr. Proby, said, I'm calling on behalf of the Beatles and Brian Epstein. Said they would like for you to come over and do their, their video for them, their TV spot. Said, uh, would you be interested? I said, yes, I am. Said, I thought as much. I've already booked your ticket. Said, uh, you're on the next plane out tomorrow night. I said, I am? She said, yes. No doubt I'll see you around. Goodbye. <laughs> so I I didn't have any clothes because my my wife had given my clothes to her new lover, and so I called uh, the only people I knew was was I, I'd been dating uh, a actress called Tuesday Weld and Nan Morris who works for Henry Wilson uh, handles Rock Hudson, and I used to be Rock Hudson's bodyguard, and so I told told Sharon I said Sharon. I got to be on an airplane tomorrow morning. I haven't got any clothes. She said, "Stay right there, and we'll pick you up. Me and in uh, Tuesday will pick you up." So they came over and picked me up and took me over to Troy Donahue's house. Of course, Troy's six feet three, and uh, I so I couldn't wear his pants, but I could wear his shirts. <laughs> so he gave me some shirts to wear, and then I went over to Warner Brothers where I'd, I'd uh, uh, worked as an extra. And I went into where all the clothes were and everything, and I stole some shirts. I stole uh, uh, one of Paul Newman's shirts from HUD, and uh, it looked like an English peasant shirt. And I stole um, a pair of boots that uh, one of one of the actors had worn in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Yeah, he was a dancer. I can't remember his name, but his but I knew his brother because his brother was a drummer in one of the bands that I, that I worked with. I can't remember his name, but but the next morning I had the old boots on and I had a torn pair of blue jeans and an old cowboy straw hat. And uh, Tuesday and Nan Morris put me on the airplane and uh, off I went. And I just drank bourbon all the way there on the flight. And when it landed. As I went to get off the airplane, there was all the news, the press, and everybody was there. And there was Jack Good with a Rolls Royce at the foot of the, the stairs, waving, Hello, Jim! Hello, Jim! And and, uh, and all the press saying, PJ, PJ, uh, do something British. Give us something British. And I couldn't think of anything. Then I remembered what Winston Churchill's victory sign. And so I put my fingers up in the victory sign, which I thought was a victory, but I had it the wrong way around. It was a Harvey Smith V. So I was telling England, hello, go fuck yourself. And Jack said, oh no, Jim, turn it around, boy. Turn it around, dear boy. Turn it around. I'll tell you what you've done later. So he told me later that I'd done the Harvey Smith, like the fuck you, uh, instead of the... Winston Churchill. So that that was that was my, how I got to England. <laughs> wow, <laughs> amazing story. And and Jack and I, of course, were 
his closest of friends for the rest of uh, rest of his life, and of course mine. I'm 84 now. Well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Come all the way from America. He's a great lad. He's a very good friend of ours. It's the first time he's ever been on telly in England. So now a big ha- a big hand, a big round of applause for PJ Proby. <laughs> So how was taping the TV special? Tell me about that. Well, that was that was funny. It, uh, I had never reckoned the Beatles to be that good because uh, they they didn't sound like the Four Freshmen. They didn't sound like uh, the Four Aces or anything like that. So uh, when I got there and I met everybody, I, I just wasn't impressed. I was just glad to get the work, and uh, I met uh, John and. Paul, uh, first, and I kind of like uh, got to know John uh, best because uh, he's more my age. They were all in their teens except for John, and we were having lunch one day after a rehearsal or during a rehearsal, and I heard this behind me. Someone said, "Give us a song, then, TJ. Give us a song." And I turned around and said. And there was this guy with the newspaper up to his face. And as he took the newspaper down, it was Paul McCartney. And I said, what do you mean, give you a song? He said, well, give us a song. You are the, you are the lead singer of Rosie and the Originals. I said, I'm not a singer of Rosie and the Originals. That's a girl singing. I said, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the girl. And I said, eat your lunch, Paul. I'm having mine. So from then on, we didn't speak. Uh, what had happened is Jack, to get me over here and to sell me to the boys and everything, had told them I was the lead singer of Rosie and the Originals. Because <laughs> uh, they loved Rosie and the Originals. Right. So he told them I was the lead singer, so they wanted me over here. They didn't want P.J. Proby. They wanted the lead singer of Rosie and the Originals. <laughs> so Jack had lied to them. Just like he had lied to the press and told him I was a big, a big singer in England, in in America, when all I was was a uh, demo singer and a motorcycle delivery boy, <laughs> delivering records. So, but he had he had spun all these wild stories about me and everything. So that's how how I met them. And then while while we were doing the uh, program around the Beatles, Jack took me in and we recorded this song that I had been doing on the beach in California with Tuesday Weld. We were sitting there trying to think of how many old classics we could make sound like the Beatles. And we came up with this song, Hold Me, that Dick Hames had had a big hit with in the 40s or early 50s. So I was singing it for a girl called Millie, who was on the show with us in the Beatles show. Right. And Jack heard me and took me in the studio and recorded me with it. And uh, the Beatles heard it and everything, and I, and I and I didn't think it it would do anything. I didn't think it was uh, very good, and uh, Jack thought it was great, and Maureen Cleave of the Evening Standard or something thought it was great, and uh, she took a, a bet for the Beatles that it would be a hit, and I took a bet against the Beatles that it wouldn't, and it ended up me having to pay the Beatles 15 pounds each because it became a hit. Right. It jumped in at number three. <laughs> wow. And so that's that's how that's how I met the Beatles. Of course, I became good friends with John. I used to eat over at he and his wife's house every Saturday, and she'd fix me uh, Harmony Grits and fried chicken and everything, all, all the southern food. And then John and I would go upstairs and play, and he had... He had a car set set of these little cars he'd race. We'd race his cars, and then we'd sing some songs and everything. It became kind of a thing as I would go over there and uh, to his to eat almost every Saturday. And I went over one Saturday, and I always brought big bo- a couple of bottles of bourbon and uh, set the bourbon on the table this one night and was pouring a couple of drinks for John and I. And he said, no, no, not for me, PJ, not for me said, I don't drink anymore. I'm on the peace weed. I'm smoking the peace weed. <laughs> and, of course, I had been around marijuana and everything in Hollywood. And, uh, 
he started rolling this marijuana cigarette, and he rolled it so loosely that I knew what was going to happen. I knew it was going to explode in his face. <laughs> and so when he lit it and drew on it, it went whoosh and took his eyebrows off. <laughs> and I said, John, let me show you how to roll them. I don't even smoke real cigarettes, but I at least know how to roll a joint. So I told him how to roll a joint. And um, after that evening ended, he started getting into to marijuana and drugs and everything. And I'd, I've never been into drugs at all. So we, we drifted apart because he didn't want to go out and uh, raise hell anymore. He just wanted to sit back and, and cool it and everything. <laughs> yeah. Smoky so we, we had nothing in common once he started on drugs. Yeah, um, you know, many years ago I interviewed uh, Kim Fowley, and, and he had lots of great stories oh, about Oh, Lord, you. yeah, Kim. <laughs> yeah. I met him at Sharon Sheely's. Yeah. Uh, we were all up there, and uh, she was having a uh, lunch for this boy who had uh, said that he wrote Dumb Dumb Diddly Dumb, and uh, Sharon had wrote, written that, and, and I think Baker Knight had written one very much like it. So he he came over and she was giving him lunch and everything, and he was just a young kid. So when when he got up from the table, he said, "I like you very much, Sharon, but I'm still going to sue you because I wrote it." So when he was leaving, John and and uh, Dor- Johnny and Darcy Burnett, Darcy jumped on him and and was uh, beating the living shit out of the kid, and then Johnny jumped on him. They knocked him all the way down the stairs into the street, and there was blood all over the street. And everything, and then uh, Sharon broke it up, and they they all left and everything. But Kim Fowley uh, was there, and he called the newspapers, and Sharon had to get rid of Ricky and uh, the Everly Brothers and everybody else that was there before the uh, police came and everything, and the press. And so the only one she wasn't able to get rid of was Baker Knight, and she hid Baker in a closet. And uh, so afterwards, she she and Dottie went over to Kim Fowley's house and beat the living shit out of him. <laughs> and, and but that's that's how I first met Kim. <laughs> <laughs> and he said when when you were in England, he was kind of like the MC for your for a lot of your tours. Yeah, yeah, he came over here when I was here, and uh, I'd I'd started uh, doing tours by then, and so I had him uh, MC my tours. And I'd give him my uh, velvet shoes with the buckle after I'd done a show. And I'd have Kim go out and say, whose shoes are these? <laughs> whose shoes are these? And the crowd, PJ, would you like to have these shoes? Yes, yes. And he'd throw the shoes out in the, in the, in the audience. Sometimes he'd hit a girl in the head and knock her out and everything. <laughs> almost get me in trouble. <laughs> so you must have had a lot of those shoes, I guess. Oh, I did. They were expensive, very expensive shoes. But, hell, I was making so much money in those days, it didn't matter to me. <laughs> yeah, he was sort of explaining that the idea was that the show should end in a riot after, you know, five or six songs so that you could get back to London and go out drinking. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was a riot every time. <laughs> they used to rush the stage in those days. And they, they, they didn't just want an autograph or anything. They'd tear you apart. They'd tear you to pieces. Yeah, it must have been kind of scary. I mean, nowadays, guys jump in the audience and they pass him over their heads and everything. You couldn't do that in the 60s. They'd rip you to pieces. Yeah, no kidding. Because <laughs> there was no drugs in those days. It was all drink they were they were under. Uh, drink brings on violence. In part two... Bloody ponytails and torn velvet time. We'll be talking about Proby's adventures and misadventures in England in the mid-60s. His riotous live performances, the headlines, the fistfights, the lawsuits, the drinking, and you better believe we're going to be talking about some of the great records he made too. 
Oh yeah, and his trousers. We'll be talking about those too. The Ugly Things Podcast was produced by James Archer and hosted by Mike Stacks. That's me. You can read lots more about PJ Proby in the latest issue of Ugly Things Magazine, available at the very coolest record and bookstores and at uglythings.com. That's ugly-things.com, where you can also order back issues, vinyl, CDs and books, and read additional articles and reviews. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and spread the word to your friends. We would also appreciate it if you became a Patreon supporter. For a small monthly donation, Patreon members get exclusive access to all kinds of interesting bonus content. Your contribution will help us keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat, garage, and psychedelic music. I'd like to send out a personal thank you to our top Patreon supporters. Dean Curtis, David Biasotti, David Jones, Michael Barbara, Chip Lyon, Rob Brannigan, Stephen Schmidt, J. Paul Riger, and Derek Davidson. Thank you, all of you, for your support. And thank you for listening.